Happy Aviation History Month! It's your boy, Greg, and here's what we've got taken off in the Popping Collars feed for November 2022. We're soaring into the world of media and journalism in pop culture on the latest Popping Collars. Hear us channel our inner Woodward and Bernstein. Or is that our inner Redford and Hoffman? Oh well. Make sure to keep your seatbelts buckled as we land another episode of the PC Music Diary this month. We've hit some turbulence on the latest Going on 30, and only Betsy and Liz can get us through this rough patch. They take flight this month with Thelma and Louise. Also, don't forget to vote for your favorite movies in our third annual Golden Poppers. Voting is now live on our website at poppingcollarspodcast.com. Speaking of climbing, Ryan Parker and I reach new altitudes in our conversation about the Camino de Santiago on this month's Sacred Six when we discuss the Cantabrian Mountains and El Bierzo region of the trail. Thank you for flying the friendly podcast skies with the longest-running Episcopal podcast in the history of air travel. Now just sit back, relax, put those tray tables in their upright and locked positions, and keep those collars popped. I'm Phoebe. Oh, cool. Uh, I'm podcast. Why do people call you podcast? Oh, I call myself podcast because of my podcast. So what's your podcast about? Oh, um, mostly mysteries and the unknown, uh, conspiracy theories, the occasional restaurant review. Maybe I could check it out sometime. Really? Yeah. The show really finds its voice on episode 46. Welcome to Poppin' Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of popular culture and religion. My name is Betsy Carmody. I am one of your hosts. I'm here at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. But joining me are my co-hosts. And where should I begin on the wheel of fun? Let's go with Liz Easton. Liz, where are you? What you up to? Hey, Betsy. Um, I'm Liz Easton. I'm the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Nebraska. It's um, diocesan convention season, baby. So we're, um, you know, getting all excited for our little family reunion coming up. Fabulous. What's the weather currently in Nebraska? How are we feeling? So it's been super cold. We've had a couple of freezes and um, I'm sure it'll warm up again like it does in the fall. But we've been we've had night times down in the 20s. Oh, whoa. Whoa. Dipping low. Up in the low 50s. Yeah, it's cold. Oh. Got you. Got you. All right. Well, then let's take it to warmer climbs. Let's go to Ricardo Avila. Where are you? What you up to, Ricardo? Hey, Betsy. Uh, indeed, it is warmer. It was 80 degrees today oh, in lovely Lord. Los Gatos, California, uh, where I am the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Um, I just celebrated five my five-year anniversary of being their rector. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, yeah. That's That's the longest I've served at any church before being, you know, shown the door or. (laughs) Oh, stop. Oh, stop. Not true. Or, you know, moving on to other things, but uh, no, all is well. I I don't have a, I don't have a top, top of the hour story to impart, but things go good. I, I, you know, we're doing our stewardship season stuff and uh, the senior warden uh, had a stewardship minute during the announcements. And she was, was interesting. I, I think you can keep this in. She said something like, and you know, the other thing that's great about this place is there's not a lot of tension. There's not a lot of drama. It's amazing. Churches always have drama, but we're doing fine. And I thought, well, that's true. I guess that's a selling point. You're like, so thank you for money. that spotlight on this five minutes that we're in right now. Excellent. But it, it was just sort of an interesting thing to kind of kind of bring tease out of everything that's going on. Um, but it's kind of true. And you know, that that creates a little an atmosphere of love, if you ask me. So uh, all is well in our little corner of Los Gatos. Excellent. You keep flaunting those 80 degree temps. Let's go down to maybe where it's like maybe warmer. I don't know. Greg, what are you doing? What are you up to? 
don't know. I think it was a chilly 80 degrees today. Um, oh, that's tough for Florida. Funny Florida. Uh, hello, Betsy. Uh, my name is Greg. I am the Associate for Christian Formation at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. I don't really have a whole lot except, uh, oh, I have news. I have news for the pod. I have news for what? you guys. What? Uh, I received yet another unsolicited email uh, to poppingcollarspodcast at gmail.com. And it turns out that we are the 52nd ranked spirituality podcast in the country of Jordan. Jordan. Oh. So, oh. don't know who's in Jordan listening, but hey, welcome, Jordan. Yeah, thanks for listening, Jordan. Yeah, we're here for it. Word, Jordan. Word up. Wow. So one through fifty-one, probably no other Episcopal podcast in there. Yeah, Joel that. Osteen and people like that. Yeah, I think we're still Super the number Sunday. number one Episcopal podcast in Jordan, is yeah. what I'm thinking. Awesome. That's my news. That's the only news I have. <laughs> Somebody told you that. Somebody wrote to tell you that. It's uh, it, there's there's like all these like podcast rate charting sites. You know, and they're like, oh, did you know that your podcast is blah, 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 blah. You should sign up for our marketing team and we'll blah, 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 blah. Oh, God. Okay. I, I, I believe about this much of what they're saying. I want to believe this much of what they're saying. <laughs> it's like who's who of American high school students. That's what it is, essentially. <laughs> and maybe we'll buy a yearbook full of podcasts. And they'll take our $25 and be happy. So, my friends, welcome to this episode. Um, some of you know, based on this episode and maybe uh, trivia games hosted across this country about each of us, that I actually was a journalist for a decade before I came and, and went to seminary in California and met these crazy co-hosts of mine. But I worked in... Journalism. I worked. Uh, I went to journalism school at Northwestern University in in uh, Chicago, at the Medill School of Journalism. Shout out to all my friends. We just had our reunion. I was not able to attend, but I'm thinking of all of you. And then I I was in design, graphic design. So kind of pulling together news judgment, writing, photography, and design. So I worked at the Times Picayune in New Orleans, where I met some amazing people and worked with them, and then moved here to the D.C. area and worked at the Washington Post for seven years before going on maternity leave, never returning, and going to seminary. So um, it is journalism and media is something I think that is near and dear to my heart, at least in my own journey. It has been something that I felt called to early on but then felt this kind of pull away. And I'll probably talk a little bit about that with mine, but we thought we would share our favorite or most interesting intersections of popular culture and media or journalism. So we've got the bag, the sacred bag. I mean, the, the rustling is very low, Greg. I feel like yeah. your mic, it's not great. That. I think, can you put your hand in it and move it around a little bit? Ricardo needs to see the. I'm looking. Thing. Yeah, we okay. So here we go. Here we go. All right, there's four four letters inside. Here we go. So let's let's see who we're gonna hear from first. Yeah, please be me. Yay! It is me. <laughs> oh, look at you. Greg Yay. is very concerned that someone's gonna take his. That's concerned. And as you know, mine. And... our faithful listeners know we rarely cross over. It happens, but yeah. it's rare. I was afraid somebody was going to take mine. And um, and also, when I was editing the last episode, I got super jealous when Ricardo went first and then he got to be done and he was done. And so it was nice. <laughs> it's a nice <laughs> feeling. Um, OK, so we're going to talk about Spotlight oh, from 2015. Uh, Tom McCarthy directed movie from 2015 starring Michael Keaton and Mark Ruffalo and um, all the Spotlight team. Uh, okay, so we actually watched this movie in my Bethesda movie club um, pretty recently, and it was uh, it was a night where it, we, we used to run double features um, of movies, so we would pick two movies a month, 
and they would have something in common with each other. And the time where we talked about Spotlight was the same month that we talked about Moneyball. Um, and we were talking about how just institutions, you know, serve to kind of protect themselves and they don't like anything to upset the sort of systems that they create for themselves and stuff. And um, Spotlight is, of course, the story of um, the uh, the Spotlight journalism team that exposed uh, clergy abuse in Boston and uh, went on to expose abuses around America with their reporting. And uh, I think the reason that I like Spotlight is because it does something I think that's really important. It says something that's really important to us today, which is that it's kind of a, a picture of two dying institutions uh, at the same time, uh, the newspaper industry and the church. So Spotlight is one of those movies that's really tough, but yet somehow sort of, you know, it keeps you glued um, whenever you watch it. I find it to be kind of a rewatchable movie in a weird way. Um, I think the characters are amazing. It's one of those, Betsy and I talk about this when we talked about JFK on Going on 30. It's one of those get it done teams you know, I love I love it when teams work well together. That's my jam. And um, and it's a movie that does that really well. But it's kind of this perpetual search for the truth, even though you may not like what you find and what you what you find could be heartbreaking and disturbing and horrific. Only 50 percent of the clergy are celibate. <clears throat> now, most of them are having sex with other adults. But the fact remains that this creates a culture of secrecy that tolerates and even protects pedophiles. So you believe the church is aware of the extent of this uh, crisis? Oh, absolutely. Uh, after the first major scandal in Louisiana, Tom Doyle, the secretary canonist for the papal nuncio, co-authored a report warning pedophile priests were a billion-dollar liability. That was in 1985. No, 1985? That's right. Who saw that report? Anyone from the Catholic hierarchy? Sure. Doyle tried to introduce the report at the National Conference of Catholic Bishops. In fact, Cardinal Law initially helped to fund the report, but then he backed out and they shelved it. Uh, Are you kidding? Richard uh, Robbie here. We think we have uh, 13 priests in Boston that fit this pattern, which would be a very, very big story. Does that sound right to you uh, in terms of scale? No, not really, Robbie. Sounds low to me. My estimates suggest 6% act out sexually with minors. Uh, 6% of what? 6% of all priests. How, how many priests do we have in Boston? About 1,500. 1% is 15. 6% is 90. Wait. Nine, 90 priests. Is that possible? From a metric standpoint, yes. That would certainly be in line with my findings. So I think that, the, I think, uh, you know, I'm talking around a lot of different things and, you know, probably you guys will help me articulate it a little bit better, but um, it's just a movie that I just think is amazing in the way that it's crafted. And, um, and again, like there's something melancholy about knowing the state of newspapers today and the state of the church today. And this is a story that brings those two things together and it sort of marks a road of the decline, like a, a point of the decline for both of them. So anyway, so Spotlight is my pick. That's all I got. Yeah, I'll say, Greg, and I didn't know when I left journalism in 2007 that I was leaving at a precipitous time. I can say at least for the Washington Post and the rounds of buyouts and contraction of things like there's no way when I was hired for the post in 1999 that they would move a assistant artistic director from one city to another uh less than 10 years later like just the 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 financial contraction of that and when I would return to the paper you know when I would come back for visits and having to see the standing committee and things like that it felt like my friends there had aged, you know, in like Obama kind of ways, you know, when you become the president, like it's a lot to kind of go through and this kind of traumatic contraction of a medium, especially when you know, I'm, I'm watching these colleagues of mine and I'm not saying every journalist is like this, 
who is just really working to do the best job that they can in the most, you know, meaningful and integrity filled way. And I would find myself often in seminary classrooms where people are like, well, the media. And I'm like, well, hold on just a second. Hold on. And, and listener, you can't see. I've got kind of the, <laughs> the one finger in a circle. Hold on a second. And like, because it was, you know, there were a lot of people there that were really trying to do their best work to, to really change the world and try to change communities and help people. And it's, um, I'm not saying every journalist is like that, but the ones I worked with were. And so it's, it's hard to watch that contraction. And also to think about the spotlight work in, in specifically. And I think as Episcopalians, there was, there was a period of time. I don't know whether we ever thought this isn't us, but you're watching the Catholic church go through this and the systemic pieces. And then we deal with our own house and our own closet and our own darkness. And that that has also been a part of that story, at least for me, particularly working in schools and boarding schools and being aware. And I'm always aware, you know, that's not happened specifically for me in the role that I am in now, but that that is, those are all places, particularly when you're working with young people, where you have to be vigilant and, and ready. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I, I feel a little, I feel a little bulletproof in the sense that I'm not clergy and you guys are. And so I feel like I can say some things that are a little less popular in the church world, but there are, there are many things that are wrong with our institutions sometimes. And, uh, and yet, you know, we have a podcast where we talk about these things, but there are things that we don't talk about on this podcast, you know, like the institutions have ways of protecting themselves and it's, uh, it's scary. And I think that that's what this exposes a little bit, but also, you know, you said, Betsy, like, this is a pursuit of the truth. And this is what, you know, this is like ideal journalism, you know, yes. in the same way that like all the president's men is like ideal journalism. A lot of these people are just banging out stories, you know, just like we're kind of banging out sermons or Sunday school lesson plans or something like that. And you want to think that you're doing like your absolute best each time, but sometimes you're just kind of just, just knocking it out one day at a time. And I think that like, it's that kind of, it's, it's taking your foot off the, the gas, you know, the Holy spirit sort of passion of what it is that we're actually doing that sometimes leads us down some pretty dark roads institutionally and makes us make bad decisions in the sense that we're trying to protect the institution rather than serving Jesus. What is so hard when you hear these stories from longer ago is why didn't anyone call the police? Like, I know that when I receive a complaint like that, my first phone call is to the police. Like, I just know that that's what we're trained. That's what we do. That's the right thing to do. And they know that in the Catholic church now too. And it was the courage and force, unfortunately, of people over many, many, many years and decades and losing so much mm-hmm. um, to push that change in culture that I think will, in the decades to come, have a big impact. But unfortunately, the, the pain and suffering was so severe that it has tarnished that church and every church. I just totally, Liz, I mean, what did it take for someone who was abused by a priest to be able to be strong enough to surmount their own kind of self stuff and the community. I mean, they probably had family members who wish they'd never said anything, Absolutely, you know, not to mention the church community who don't talk about father or don't even talk about sex, you know? And so all those layers having to push through, and I can only imagine that they, 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 they maybe only succeeded because they had to, you know, to survive. Yeah initially yeah because otherwise it, it's soul destroying i mean it's it's awful what happens to yeah. people's lives so um yeah it is i'm glad it's changed it, it, it has your right but it's slow because it's systemic right you know we have these big peaks mm-hmm. and then it becomes this continued push well and it's also the you know the the other heartbreaking side of it is that as 
journalism goes away or becomes more niche, yeah. how frequently do these stories get reported yep. you know, moving forward? And that's, that's the hard yeah. part. If everything becomes wire services, you know, and you're not having anybody who's doing the work on the ground and big and smaller communities that becomes more difficult. Yeah. Okay. Baggy I've bag. Monopolized, I've monopolized an hour of the podcast time. So nice. You guys well, are all have to cut out the majority. Oh, of I see it. I see it. I feel, hold on. You're all allotted five minutes. It's an L it's an L. Okay. Um, L for Liz. Now it's my turn to monopolize an hour of the podcast. Um, JK, I am going to say really quick, quickly. Okay. She's pulling out a notebook, everybody. I don't know what's going on. Um, speaking of Mark Ruffalo, I was like all ready to do, um, Zodiac, which is one of my favorite movies and Mm -hmm. the great story of the Zodiac killer sending in letters to the San Francisco Chronicle and the young cartoonist who helped. Well, he didn't help anything. Actually, he just became completely obsessed with the Zodiac killer case, which is still unsolved. And then out of nowhere, as I was thinking about it, I was like, no, I have a different idea. And this is something that I didn't actually know that much about and wanted to learn about. So my choice for this episode of the podcast is the October 30th, 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds on CBS radio. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmer's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks for the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. So I'll give like a quick synopsis and then just like some things I thought about. Okay, so quick synopsis. Orson Welles, young Cracker Jack media guy. He's not not no big belly at this point. He's just a young guy. He's like in his 20s. He has a um, like a radio theater called the uh, Orson Welles Mercury Theater. It's not popular at all. (laughs) Nobody listens to this thing at all. And they do. It no with- one's into radio theater. What's wrong no, with these? these- there is radio back then, just like television today had the things that like everybody was tuning into. And at the same time that this radio play was on, everyone in America was listening to um, a really popular variety show. This is an important part of the story. So they decide that for this particular week for Halloween, they want to be a little bit creepy and they're going to retell HG Wells's. Um, book from the late 19th century War of the Worlds, which is sort of a critique of British imperialism. It's about Martians. It's about uh, the great colonizers being colonized by Mm. Mars. Okay. So not particularly cool, but fairly well-known storyline at the time. So um, Orson Welles has the idea that what they're going to do is create a radio play that is a fake news broadcast of as if this is happening in real time in a town in New Jersey called Grover's Mill. And he will claim Orson Welles will claim for the rest of his career that he had no intention of creating a panic. And he probably didn't because people thought this is so ridiculous. Nobody would think it was real. It's a story about Mars attacking. Critically, what he decided to do was their radio play program was not sponsored. Nobody listened to it. So they didn't have to break for commercials. 
And he figured out when the radio show that everybody was listening to, the variety show, did break for commercials. It's when they would be likely to turn the dial. So by the at the time that people did that, they would have missed the opening, um, like, hey, we're going to tell the story of War of the Worlds. They were also going to miss the break, and they would have to wait 40 minutes until they were ever interrupted to say, you're listening to you know, the Mercury Broadcast Company, blah, you know, War of the Worlds. So for 40 minutes, people were listening to a fake news broadcast, not knowing it was about Mars. Now, I didn't know this part. We're in 1938 in the United States. Americans looking toward Europe, worried about fascism, worried about a war that we I mean, worried, but not that worried. Of the, I mean, some like, people more worried than other people. But there's Sadly. a high amount of tension in the United States coming out of World War One, still coming out of years of economic depression and now the rising threat of fascism in Europe. And when I didn't realize this until today, when people listen to the broadcast, they missed the part about the Martians. They think that they're listening to a live radio broadcast of Germany attacking the United States. So no mm-hmm. wonder they're pretty freaked out. So it's scary. The next day, the Orson Welles wakes up and he's like the most famous man in America and everybody hates him. And he inspired this mass panic. And there are all of these stories reported of people committing suicide, people going into like shock. None of these stories end up being true. There was not mass hysteria. It was misreported. It was just sensationalized. Um, people were upset and people were scared, but it was not an occasion for mass hysteria. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. It made me think about, um, sort of the rise of, um, scary, like horror movies or apocalyptic movies that use like quote unquote found footage and the way that we use modern technology like the internet to create sort of a scare tactic where we try to make it look real. And like, remember like when the Blair witch project came out, Oh, absolutely. It was real or like um, Cloverfield or something like that. So one of the quotes that I saw said new technologies are magnets for our fears and new media is a flashpoint because communication is so central to our experience. So there is this sort of long history and this is one Mm -hmm. of the, important stories in that history of using communication to sort of manipulate and foment our fear about the world around us, particularly the fear of apocalypse. And um, the last thing I'll say about this before opening it up for conversation that I thought was so interesting was that the first film, the first movie to rely on 9-11 style imagery to help process the trauma of those uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11 was the 2005 Steven Spielberg adaptation of War of the Worlds. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) Meta. So there's something about that story that continues to um, scare us and uh, help us process trauma and fear the way that it did in 1938 with Orson Welles. I think what I appreciated about what you said, Liz, the story is, um, <laughs> is that the reaction wasn't accurate. <laughs> right. I love, I love this, that like we get everything about the story is wrong, <laughs> yeah. um, which, which I, I think is just like, so in line with how I understand, you know, um, our reactions to just sort of modern day stories and sort of Twitter storms around something, or um, many people are saying that there was mass hysteria, (laughs) you know, it's like, no, no, they're not, (laughs) you know, it's like, it's hard to, it's, it's almost gotten to the point. um, And this must be a hundred year old idea that like, whatever anyone tells you, you just kind of like half believe it. (laughs) So, until you can verify it, you know? You know, this reminds me of when when the January 6th assault on the Capitol happened in 2021. Uh, I was getting Vietnamese food from a place in San Mateo, and 
I just looked on my phone and saw Facebook and there are all these people responding. What are they doing? WTF? Did you see what he just did? Blah, blah, blah. And it was people I knew, but I didn't know what was going on. And so I looked and, and I, nobody was actually saying what was happening. They were just commenting on the minutiae. And so I thought, oh, just there's some big protests that's gone a little kooky. And I didn't actually realize until later that it was this big deal. Even though people were responding, there was no content really to it. Um, it was just sort of reactions. And um, how did they get the original information? <laughs> I guess you had to be on Facebook at this one moment or something or hear someone say there's an attack on the Capitol happening right now. Uh, and so I, I kind of dismissed it, got my Vietnamese food, went home and ate, and didn't you know think about it until four hours later. Well, and this was a really early example of like intentionally crossing over news and entertainment. And of course, they had no idea at the time what the outcome of that would be, not only for this circumstance, but for the future of media. And like they had to run the script past CBS's lawyers and they were fine with it. They made them change a couple of little things just because they didn't want to get sued by like businesses but they didn't nobody saw this coming but what i love is the nuance in the study of social behavior and people the sociology behind it mm -hmm. is what makes it more impactful totally and that 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 that's what i think in the end really appeals to me about the whole event and there were people who said like there were people who called up their local radio stations and were like i in new jersey who were like i can see the fire spreading on the horizon like i mean it did create a kind for the people a fervor a fervor is happening we all start to see it once we start thinking we see it right for only 40 minutes and there's a really famous picture of an old man standing in like his barn with a rifle like getting ready to damn shoot. good lord but it all happened really fast and yeah, then it was like been listening to <laughs> take out some martians i love it <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Good pick, Liz. Nice. Hey, I love it. Fun to learn about. Okay. Did you have something? Oh, sorry. I thought you had something, Ricardo. Well, now you do because uh, your name came oh, up. Man. Oh, man. All I right. didn't see him pull that out of the bag. I just want to, I feel like I missed that when that really right. happened, Greg. Uh, so the only reason I have two picks is that neither of them is actually good enough for one. So Because you're a cheater. Okay, I got it. And I'm a cheater, Betsy. You got me. Okay, so um, the thing that immediately came to mind with media was broadcast news, uh, but I've never seen it. <laughs> so I couldn't talk about it. Okay. Um, and then what came to mind next is one of my two picks. And I did see this, but, uh, well, I'll just tell you. It's the 1940 movie, His Girl Friday. Starring Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell, a screwball comedy about reporters uh, and love, right? Where did I screwball, remember. what is screwball, what define in your black and white sensibility, where does, what is the entomology of screwball? Do you have anything, Ricardo? Oh, I don't know about the entomology. I, I mean, a screwball comedy is one that's just kind of madcap and there's all this stuff going on and people are acting ridiculously just for laughs. Um, it's like slapstick, isn't it? Well, uh, except I think screwball is a lot of verbal kind of uh -huh. in mm -hmm. repartee. Repartee. Yeah. And Thank slapstick's you. Yes. more physical. Yeah, it's more like hit him over the head with the, you know, the mallet, kind of like the three stooges, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, so screwball comedy. Um, Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, they had a thing before she's about to get married to someone else. He convinces her to come and be a reporter on this big breaking story. And then it turns out to be a big breaking story and she has a really uh, solid opinion on it. And then she really gets into it. Um, and I think it's, I think it's the thing I remember it most for is how fast the dialogue was. And it was, I could not keep up. I was like, what did they just say? What is going on? It's directed by Howard Hawks. And the one thing I did learn in my research, uh, my little bit of research is that he deliberately sped up the soundtrack and he had overlapping dialogue and he actually wanted it to be the fastest, the movie with the fastest dialogue. And in fact, um, the previous version, it's based on a play called The Front Page. And there was a movie version of The Front Page called The Front Page prior to His Girl Friday. And he played them side by side to prove that his dialogue was faster. <laughs> and 
So that really worked because I was very confused when I watched the movie. I mean, it's the sort of thing where they're walking through the newsroom and they're both having a conversation and then they say something else and they pick up a phone and they pick up another phone and they say, oh, get that done. And just like, it just is kind of stressful, right? You're mad all you want to, Hilly, but you can't quit the newspaper business. Well, why not? I know you, Hilly. I know what quitting would mean to you. Well, what would it mean? It would kill you. <laughs> you can't sell me that, Walter Byrne. Who says I can't? You're a newspaper man. That's why I'm quitting. I want to go someplace where I can be a woman. You mean be a traitor. A traitor? A traitor to what? A traitor to journalism. You're a journalist, Hilde. A journalist? Now, what does that mean? Peeking through keyholes? Chasing after fire engines? Waking people up in the middle of the night to ask them if Hitler's going to start another war? Stealing pictures off old ladies? I know all about reporters, Walter. A lot of dampy budinskis running around without a nickel in their pockets. And for what? So a million hired girls, motorman's wives will know what's going on? Why, I... God. I don't know how it ended because I don't remember. Well, so that's one of my two picks. Let's call call it a half. Uh, the other half pick is is from a book that I just finished listening to for the first time called The Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. It's a book from 1987. I'm sure you've heard of it. Never read it. Never saw the movie that is apparently quite awful. There's one of the one of the kind of threads in it is it follows a British reporter called Peter Fallow. And he is, um, it's such a, so the book's a satire. I mean, it's a satire and it skewers everything in New York City. But the thing I want to say is it's portrayal of the media. So this Peter Fallow, he'll do anything to get a story and everybody, he's, he's, a, he's a loser, but then he gets a good scoop, but it's fed to him for other reasons. And then he becomes famous and wins a Pulitzer. And in the meantime, the media is this mob and there's this murder case or attempted murder case thing. And the media just plays it up, makes it a whole, you know, Park Avenue versus the Bronx, the rich white people and the poor downtrodden black person. And it's 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 kind of it's so cynical and depressing. Mm. And I don't know what else to say about it, except that you really come away thinking that the media is pretty about as venal as those stockbrokers are. And in fact, in some ways, the, 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 the best person in the in the book is the the stockbroker protagonist who does a bad thing but actually seems to care about stuff those are my two half picks his girl friday and the bonfire of the vanities uh mm. portrayal of the media mm. i don't know if you got anything to say about that but at least it was short <laughs> never seen the movie or read the book i've the seen the movie awful. i've seen the movie bonfire of the vanities it's been a while yeah there's kind of that 80s kind of decadence vibe I feel like we've talked about it, Greg, and going on 30. I feel like we've touched either director or something with Bonfire. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma was yeah. the director. Yeah. Melanie Griffith was in it. And Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis. And it's cynical and depressing. So oh hold uh, on. I'm confusing Bonfire of the Vanities with a Klaus von Bülow situation. What movie is that? Uh Reversal of Fortune. Reversal of Fortune. Nice, Greg. Hello. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I just watched. I just watched Dead Ringers. I've been watching like a bunch of um, horror movies this month. Oh yes, Jeremy <laughs> Irons and Glenn Close. <laughs> but I feel like this should be called Bonfire of the Vanities. Honestly, like it's just such a great title. It's such a great title. I mean, it makes you think of um, is it Ecclesiastes? All is vanity. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's a deliberate echo uh, because it really is. It, it, it every, every no one gets away unskewered and unscathed. Um, so I recommend listening to that audiobook. It's really well uh, spoken and done uh, narrated. And um, here's Girl Friday. You're going to have to rewind to actually see, understand what's happening. But uh, worth a listen. I love those fast paced. Did you ever see uh, Hudsucker Proxy, the Coen Brothers movie? Uh -uh. They, it's like a riff on those fast talking, like you know, who's left in the bag? Just a B for Betsy. So I went in search of what was the movie or piece of media that made me decide in the early '90s that I wanted to be a journalist. And so I started doing all this googling and looking around, and what was it? What was it? Was it? And it was not a movie that I would have ever have gone to go see in the theater because I was 10 years old when it came out and it was rated R. So that was not happening. But I think it was definitely a movie that I saw and it came out in 84. So it was definitely a movie that I saw in the later, later 80s. And that is The Killing Fields. In a country shattered by war, 
a New York Times reporter and his interpreter would learn the price of survival, of freedom, and friendship. This is a big story, a major story, you understand that? We have got to get down there. The Killing Fields. U.S. bombs, you sure? I think many, many died, I don't know. That's a rumor, now I'm not gonna comment on a rumor. David Anson of Newsweek calls The Killing Fields an extraordinary movie, compelling and convincing. Not to be missed. All right, I've arranged for the evacuation of you and your family. So now it's up to you. What do you want to do? Richard Schickel of Time Magazine says one has to admire the honesty of the killing fields. You know, Pran is not going to last five minutes out there. Pat Collins of CBS Morning News calls the killing fields unforgettable. And People Magazine says, if you see no more than one film a year, make it this one. Why didn't you get him out when you had the chance? You had no right to keep him here. Stephen Schaefer of Us Magazine calls it one of the year's best movies. A stirring true story that captures human drama with true compassion. I'm very pleased to accept this on behalf of Dith Prime and myself. It bothers me that you let Pran stay in Cambodia because you wanted to win that award. Nobody gets to go in there. If I thought I could, I would. The Killing Fields. A film that will challenge you, change you, and never let you forget what you experienced. Wow. It was, you know, so this is the story, the 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 true story of Sidney Schauenberg. Schauenberg, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but he's a New York Times journalist and he's played by Sam Watterson in the movie. And he's covering the civil war in Cambodia. And he's working with a local journalist named Dith Pran. And then Pol Pot comes into power. Everything starts to crumble and fall apart. Dith Pran is kind of taken into the, he's he's brought into the death camps, into the Pol Pot cleansing. And Sydney, because he is white and a journalist, is able to escape that, but never forgets death and works to try to get his release. Um, as I would hope many American journalists and others who were around at the time and working with locals. I mean, it reminds me a bit of like our, when the U.S. had to leave Afghanistan mm-hmm. and the translators and all of the people who were you know, left vulnerable in that situation. And you get this peek into what is it like to be a journalist in a war-torn area that you're trying to bring light to what is happening. And the almost you're kind of untouchable to some extent. You know, we've all seen stories of journalists who have been killed in the field, but that there's something that I'm here and I have this kind of immunity around me, this immunity bubble. But then when you start working with locals, that then they don't. And the bond that can exist inside that field of work. And and then it, it gets it gets actually wrapped into Hong Noor's actual real story that he was an educator and lived in Cambodia and was in the cleansing camps, was caught up in all of that as a younger person, is eventually murdered in his garage in, in LA in 1996 wow. and is believed to be mm-hmm. retribution from the Khmer Rouge. Really? For his involvement. And, I didn't know, you know that and, part of the story. And he, he, he eventually finds his way to the U.S. as a refugee in like the early 80s and starts working in films. And then, you know, there's a lot of attention garnered when his work. And but I think for me, the the idea that journalism can make a difference and it can make a difference even in a situation that is falling apart and that there's there's still light to bring as the darkness grows and folds in. And how do we how do journalists work hard to try to take care of the people who they work with? Yeah. And I think there was something really inspiring about their relationship to me because that's what I, that's what I thought when I got in journalism, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a difference. And this film was really inspiring to me. It makes me think like we as messed up as our media is right now, the value of a free press is so mm-hmm. essential mm-hmm. to a free society. And um, your story and, and thinking of Cambodia is making me think of the protests in in Iran right now. Mm-hmm. Yes. And 
I'm like so moved by the young people mainly who are leading the way there and who are disappearing and being murdered just in droves and that the government's response is to shut down the internet, Mm. you know, because they don't want the story told. They don't want citizens to be journalists. They don't want journalists to be journalists. They want to be able to hide this, this atrocity yeah. And, and still there are people risking their lives to tell the story and shine a light on what's happening as messed up as we are. And we are so messed up. <laughs> we, we still have a, a free press for now. I love it. Like, you know, Liz said something on this show one time that I, I has always stuck with me, which is like, stories are complicated. Like, you know, and I think it was around the 2016 election you know, it's not as simple as like, well, this happened. And so that's why this happened. Like, it's just all of these things are just so entwined and there's money and there's power and there's governments. And it's like all this stuff. And it's like, and here are these people whose job it is to like untangle it Mm -hmm. so that they can explain it. And it's like who, you know, the other side of that is like, who's reading the articles? Right. right. How do you like, make people care enough to read? How the, do you right? make people care? Yeah. But the yeah. search for the truth is so important mm-hmm. that they're willing to like risk yeah. everything. Right. I also subscribe to the Atlantic like Ricardo and I struggle because that the Atlantic is long form journalism and every month I struggle. And that's part of what I have to remind myself, Greg, is like there is a value in the um, investment that was put into the journalism of this piece. And there's a value in my investment of time in reading it. Uh, but it's really hard because like everyone else, like I, I do get the majority of my news reading headlines. Right. And well, and listening to NPR. Well, but have you noticed on for those who subscribes to you, Ricardo responds to the New York times. I do. Mm-hmm. Do you list? Okay. So have you noticed they started to put times on the stories yes. on the app? Five um, minute read, 10 minute read, yes. seven minute, mm-hmm. three minute read. And and I'm just like, it makes me sad that, you know, I'm going to read this because your journalism is quality, you know, regardless of the time. Uh, right, but but, sometimes you see like, oh, it's a 12 minute read. Like, <laughs> well, maybe that's a, maybe I bookmark that and that's for Sunday, you know. But then there's just as many people who have issues with the newer types. And, Absolutely. you know, so it's, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I know more about what's going on in New York City than I do in, like, San Jose. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't. Well, yeah. And the, the other, local stuff. I mean, and that's the other side of this, too, is like, you know, that's uh, like, you know, it's very dramatic, like the killing fields. And it's, that's very important work. And I don't mean to say that's not. But also, like, it's important work to sit in on town hall meetings. Like, it's important work to, like, sit in on, like, you know, state assemblies and, you know, like, all of these things. And I just think about those reporters that report on, like, you know, school board meetings and stuff like that. And, like, if that person wasn't in the room, God knows what would happen. (laughs) You know, it's like just having that person and knowing that, maybe five people will read that article is enough to like keep everything kind of flowing correctly. Well, and there is, there is almost like a moral clerical role of a journalist in a meeting. Like it it happens very occasionally in the church where journalists are present and it changes the tenor of the meeting completely because people are aware like that there are people watching, there are people holding me accountable for what I say and how I say it. this happens with general convention. Occasionally I freak out every time the newspaper calls our office for a quote, like, I, you know, it's, you're just so aware of like, Oh my God, I got to get this right. And they help hold us accountable as a community. And the less that we fund journalism, the less that we invest in engaging with good journalism, like it's to the detriment of our society. You know, Betsy, that that movie, The Killing Fields, I I don't know why, but I rem- I remember it because I saw it. But the thing that sticks with me about it is, oh God, there's a song at the end of the movie mm. that they play over it, and it's really poignant. And I remember like maybe even crying or something at the end. And I looked it up just now, and it's Imagine 
by John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, we, we've heard, I've heard a thousand times and doesn't as much move me anymore, but in the context of seeing that movie and the, 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 the sentiment of that song in everything they've been through to finally reunite and all the stuff in, in Cambodia, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's pretty stunning. Yeah. At the end. Hey, mm-hmm. right on. Good job, guys. Right yeah. on, y'all. This was a this was a good one. This was a good one. You made my journalistic heart happy. And I and I love the nuance here, there, and in between. You know, and I, I left journalism because I wanted to be able to express an opinion. And I didn't feel like I was altering the world in the way that I thought I was going to when I got into it. So I'm thankful to have colleagues like all of you alongside me with hearts and hands and thoughts and voices to to do that work. So it's um uh, if I see it all as a continuation of the same spark. So good pick. This is we have provided you listeners with a pretty cool playlist right now of movies yeah. and stuff. Like I'm into this. Oh, yeah. My great this movies is- and a radio show to listen to. I love it. Right. I love it. I love it. Well, friends, thank you so much for joining in for this episode of Popping Collars. You can, of course, find this beautiful podcast wherever you meet your podcast needs. We're also on Episcopal Journal. You can find us online there. We love Episcopal Journal. We know that you will too. We're also on poppingcollarspodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And uh and get out there. You know, what what are your what are your favorite media portrayals in in popular culture? Uh ones that you find thought-provoking, challenging, uh, mismatches or misnomers. Like we would love to hear about those too. So please, please, please share those with us. And with that, my friends, keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. <laughs> what was that, Greg? Beep, 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 beep. Suddenly, beakers on this podcast. Beakers. <laughs> <laughs>